You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered away because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still, the other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop. A hundred times more than was sown. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us explicitly like this. Like we know that creation speaks of your character and your nature, and we can learn a ton and by just looking around us, and yet without your explicit revelation of who you are, we would be left in the darkness. So thank you for bringing the light. Thank you for the seed that is the word of God. Thank you that men and women in this room have, been found, have found themselves to be good soil. And pray for the men and women in this room who find themselves to be the path or the rocky soil or covered in thorns. Father, would you and your spirit do a work that I and my words cannot do? Would you convict people who feel comfortable? Would you uh, comfort people who feel convicted? Come and be present with us, Father, by the power of your Spirit. Do a work of transformation in our hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Last weekend, uh, my wife and I got the privilege, the honor to go to the Collins Theater and watch the local production of Matilda. Uh, there were several people uh, that are in our church that were a part of that production. And I want to say you guys did an amazing job. Uh, the actors and actresses that were a part of that, like that's a hard play to do. I can act, I can't sing, so you'd never see me on that stage. But they did an amazing job. And in the play, Matilda's dad, Mr. Wormwood, you know his character, right? He hates books, he hates reading. He insults his daughter constantly about her necessant uh, like need to read all the time. And so he has this solo that he sings. I, I guess it's not a solo, it's a duet uh, with his son. And it starts like this. He says, and he's anti-books and he's pro-television. He calls the television telly. He says, somewhere on a show I heard, he didn't even read this, he saw it on a show, that a picture is worth a thousand words. So telly, if you bother to take a look, is the equivalent of like a lot of books. And so if you were with us last week, you know that we started a new series looking at some of the parables of Jesus. And these pictures, which we're reading, uh, are worth more than a thousand words. They communicate truths. These pictures communicate deep, deep mysteries, as Jesus would call it, about the kingdom of God. As Mr. Wormwood says, a picture tells a thousand words. You can see a lot written about Jesus' parables. Now, there are times where Jesus 
speaks pretty plainly, pretty straightforward. He tells people exactly the way it is. You see that a lot on the Sermon on the Mount, but there are times that he uses these like short stories or these pictures to communicate a truth in a completely different way. Jesus teaches in these parables for many reasons. They're certainly memorable. Sometimes more so than a declaration is. Someone can say something and you not remember it, but when the picture image is put out there, you remember it better. Hopefully even like my brown shirt will remind you that we're talking about dirt today. That was unintentional, by the way. Parables may cause you to ask questions. Peek your curiosity. And it's interesting that in this particular parable that we're going to look at today is it, it's in essence a parable about parables. It's a parable about why Jesus teaches the way he does. Jesus is asked why he speaks in parables. And you can see this in verses 9 and 10 where the disciples hear the story and like us, they go up to Jesus later, not in front of people because that would be embarrassing because they're supposed to be respectable disciples of his. And they go, hey, Jesus, um, what? What are you talking about? Why, why are you talking like this? Why are you talking to the people in parables? Now, you may have grown up and heard that parables are like just moralistic fables or teaching you the right things to do that God wants you to do. He wants you to be forgiving. He wants you to be hospitable to somebody who is beat up on the side of the road and so on and so forth. And like there's some truth in the reality that there is some great morals about God's character, about how he wants our character to be through these. But parables are much more than that as well. You see, these parables, they stirred up the attention and imagination of those listening. And Jesus answered in, uh, in verse 10 that it also might not have, that some people see but never see, hear but never understand. You see, parables are not just so simple sermon illustrations that Jesus uses to help make his point more clear. Because oftentimes a parable is like watching a foreign film. You don't know what's going on unless you have the subtitles on. And Jesus is basically saying that some of us have the subtitles and some of us don't. So why would Jesus have this portion of his teaching be done parable style? Why would he have it accessible to some that you might call his insiders and inaccessible to some that you might call outsiders? Is that fair? One commentator says this. He says, the disciples are actually no different from anyone in needing the explanation for the parables. They don't just naturally understand it either. They're, they're um, different from the outsiders in that they choose to come to Jesus for explanations. They also have to puzzle out the parables, but they ask questions sincerely. And he says, insiders are not indifferent. The difference between the disciples who asked him to explain the parable and the others is that this parable can act like a test to see if someone is curious about Jesus or serious about Jesus. And that's a question we have to ask ourselves each time we come to Jesus as well. And you see, Jesus talks to his disciples about this in private, not because he's intentionally trying to exclude people from hearing this aspect of it, but just because the people came to him later in private to ask him a question. And these others who heard him say the same thing, they didn't view what Jesus said as necessarily important enough to dig deeper. They likely walked away from his confusing story and saying, this guy is crazy. 
So again, this, this commentator says that Jesus' teachings, uh, they served to separate those who were seeking a religious sideshow from those who were seeking after the true God. And in fact, it's not just the parables that do this. Everything about the way Jesus lived his life does this exact same thing. That, that it separates those who are seeking after God and those who are remaining in the state of seeing but never seeing, of hearing but never understanding. You see, the, the Pharisees see Jesus heal the leper. They see him heal, but they don't see that he's the Messiah that they've longed for because they can't see through, they can't see past their legalism. The teachers of the law hear Jesus double down on the law when he's on his Sermon on the Mount, but they can't hear that he is the God of grace in the flesh. The paradox of Jesus is that everything about his life required the witness of these things to approach him with a humble heart that wants to engage with the living God. From healing the sick to dinners with sinners, which I did not mean to rhyme, but it sounds really cool, to confusing parables, to straightforward teaching, to the suffering and, and death on the cross itself. These things either cause you to lean in to Jesus and try to learn more or walk away and say, he's not worth my time. So that leads us to our, our specific parable today, which again is like a parable about parables in and of itself. And so I'm gonna look again at Luke 8. And this time we're gonna read all the way through um, this parable. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're in Luke 8, starting in verse four. It says, while a large crowd was gathering, and people were coming to Jesus from town to town. He told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on the rocky ground. And when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When Jesus said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And his disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that those seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. They do not mature, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Now, the interesting thing about this parable is that because Jesus actually kind of explains himself, he actually tries to make it more clear, there's a, a bit less written about this parable than there are, say, the prodigal son. But if we just were reading this and stopped at verse 8, you would be absolutely perplexed. Like, what is he talking about? Why would Jesus say that? And so before we jump into the soils and stuff, I just want to 
little sidestep soapbox. This is the importance of reading your Bible widely. Like, like it's a very good thing. It's a very helpful thing to have like a verse or like three verses for your morning devotional daily time with Jesus and like to read that and like soak it in and meditate on that. That's good. There's also a lot of really good things that come out of reading widely. Taking a, a whole letter in the New Testament and reading it front to back, like the whole thing. There was a, a member that I had lunch with this week and we were randomly talking about this and due to the, his job, um, he was able to find himself with a lot of extra time recently. And so he just started reading the New Testament. And in one day he read all four of the gospels. Now that takes a long time, but like you can go home today and read an entire gospel of Luke in a couple hours. Like there's an importance of reading widely as there's an importance of reading deeply as well. So it's just like a little side box because if you stopped at verse eight, you might walk away confused. But Jesus explains himself right after that. Now, he doesn't do that a lot. So I'll just let you know that. But there is still a lot of really good things about reading widely. So let's look at the four soils that Jesus uh, describes in his parable. So first, Looking at verse five, we have the, the, the seed that fell along the path. Jesus says, the farmer went out to sow his seed and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and it was trampled on and the birds ate it up. And later he says, he interprets it saying, those along the path are the ones who hear and then the devil comes, takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. These are the ones especially that Jesus says, though hearing, they may not understand. This is the person who hears the gospel proclaimed. And maybe you're even here in the, the room this morning. You hear the gospel proclaimed and it goes in one ear out the other. Because you're still living for yourself, still believing the lie that you're the center of the universe, that God is holding out on you. You're not ready to receive the gospel. Can't hear the good news because you can't believe the bad news that in sin we're born and in sin we persist. You can't believe the bad news that our pursuits of our many kingdoms is actually a pathway to death. These are the sad ones throughout the gospels that see Jesus heal a man of his physical blindness and walk away because they're spiritually blind. These are the seeds that were devoured. And if that's you this morning, I would plead with you to hear the word of the Lord, not me hear God, hear Jesus speaking. This message of Jesus is the singular most important thing you could listen to today. And there's hope for you. Pastor John Ortberg has this amazing book called Soul Keeping that I would implore you to read. Everyone in here to read. And he says this, he says, it takes just a little, just a tiny little bit of softness in the soil to give the seed a chance. The seed is strong, stronger than you can imagine. One tiny seed can break up a sidewalk if it can find a little room to breathe. The hardened soul is more vulnerable to being saved than it knows. And as I said earlier, you need to ask yourself the question, are you curious about Jesus or are you serious about Jesus? And the second set of soil that Jesus moves on to is found in verse six, the soil amidst the rocks. He says, some fell among the rocky ground. And when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Jesus later interprets this to say, those on the rocky grounds are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. 
They have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Those amidst the rocks hear the good news and receive it with joy. Forgiveness, freedom, flourishing. These are all amazing ideals that they long for, that you long for, and you find that maybe can finally be fulfilled in this Jesus. However, when the trials come, they find that their hopes were more in the gifts than in the giver. Their roots are not dug deep, so like a weed in my flower bed, they're easily pulled out. And the common analogy to this, that if you've been in the church for a while, can be like the church camp high, where you feel really good about Jesus for a couple weeks or maybe a month, and then you kind of fall away. A, uh, an analogy to our practical pop cultural life or whatever, it reminds me of a Razorback fan who started this football season really excited because last year we weren't terrible and things were going good. And we had that hiccup against Texas A&M. And then halfway through the Alabama game, you were like, you know, I'm whatever. I'm going away. I'm, I, got, I got to go mow the yard. These are the seeds that have withered. And if you felt yourself be on the rocky ground in the past, or you're tempted to fall away today, I must implore you to latch on to this gospel truth, this message that is a message of forgiveness and freedom and flourishing. But Jesus also promises us that we're going to experience trials, hardships, and even persecution specifically because you claim to be a Christian. Christianity is not the easy life, but it is the only path to true life. Now, our third group of people are those found in the soil that Jesus describes in verse seven that are among the thorns. He says, other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. And later he says, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. Now I, along with many others, and I would anticipate that you might raise your hand to say yourself, feel oftentimes like this can be me. Uh, John Calvin, in a very wordy, old English translation of his commentary says, I'm not going to put it on there because it's very hard to read in the old English. But in essence, he says, there's not one of us whose heart is not filled with a thick forest of thorns. But the danger of these thorns is that they grow so thick that we become slothful to cut them out. I mean, I know I've received the seed of the gospel. I know it has gone down deep. It has begun to build roots it's begin to flourish fruit. And I also know and I have a fear that I'll often allow the thorns that Jesus describes to choke me out of being fruitful. Again, John Ortberg says, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy because either way your soul will shrivel. Now, one of the questions I've asked myself this week is what type of fruit is Jesus referring to here that, that, that can't grow, that shrivels, that gets choked out or in the good soil actually does grow. And he doesn't actually say. My initial thought and what I've thought for many years um, before really looking at this text and thinking about it and praying about it was that for some reason the, the fruit was like me evangelizing, me sharing the gospel with people and seeing fruit of people believing. But, but since that's actually out of my control and I can preach the gospel very faithfully all the days of my life and people not believe, though that's probably not what's gonna happen. 
um, because that's out of my hand, I actually don't think that's the fruit he's talking about. I think that the fruit he's talking about here is more in line with the fruit of the Spirit. You see, um, let's actually, before we get into that, let's look again at the good soil. So in verse eight, Jesus says, still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And later he says, the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble, good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. And one commentator said that, that the good soil welcomes the word immediately, deeply, and exclusively. And so when you do that, when you receive the seed, which is the word of God, when you receive that immediately, deeply, and exclusively, fruit will come out. And that fruit is found in Galatians 5. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness. I think I missed one piece. Uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The seed that was sown into the ground with the thorns or weeds is choked by the worries of life. And so these fruits are underdeveloped. And that's why you're constantly frustrated and you don't feel like you have self-control. You don't have control over your sin. That's why you don't have joy in your life. Now, I think it's important to say that, that Paul's not saying that the Christian who has this fruit of the Spirit is perfect in the fruit of the Spirit. I don't think that's the case. We are growing in joy. We're growing in love. We're growing in patience. I also don't think that this is an exhaustive list of the fruit of the Spirit. I think Paul just like listed several things, like nine things and said, there you go. That's some, like, keep going. Like those are the types of things that are the fruit of the Spirit. This summer, we actually went through the fruit of the Spirit with our uh, Crossing Kids uh, in June and July. And all summer long, I had the privilege of teaching the elementary class. And so I would get in there, we would learn about one of the fruit of the Spirit. And each week I would quiz the kids and ask them if they remembered uh, the fruit of the Spirit uh, list. And they would start throwing out different words and a lot, they'd get most of them. But inevitably every single week they would throw out some virtue that's like really good and godly, but it's not on this list. That doesn't mean it's not a fruit of the Spirit. And so like Paul's words, I pray that if you're the good soil, you find yourself growing in joy. You find yourself growing in patience and self-control. And like our crossing kids in their own words, I hope and pray that you find yourself growing in generosity. I hope and pray you find yourself growing in the courage to share your faith with those around you. Because these two are fruit that the Spirit is in you. Now we can only do this by doing the hard work of weeding out the thorns. Jesus doesn't make a declarative statement that the one who finds themselves among the thorns cannot pull their sleeves up and put to death the thorns that entangle them. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul says you absolutely can, by the power of the Spirit, put to death that which is trying to lure you away from God. So this morning, you have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself, what are your life's worries that keep you from being fruitful? What is it in your flesh that, that, that you desire that keeps you from being patient because you're not getting your way? What is it in your flesh that you're having a hard time putting to death? You're, you don't have self-control and it keeps pulling you away from God, even though you became a Christian five years ago. 
Jesus talks about riches being one of these things that can distract us. And the interesting thing here is like riches is a very subjective reality. Because to some of you, I might be considered rich. And to some of you, I dress in rags. Like to the third world, pretty much every one of us is absolutely wealthy. So riches is not about a quantity of money. It's about a mindset that is focused on like get, like get, take, 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 get, get, get. So whether you have money or you don't have money, you can be distracted by the allure of riches. And so Jesus says that these are the types of things that can easily take us over. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how is the pursuit of the good life in riches and pleasures prevented us from pursuing a fruitful life? And could it even be too that your old addictions, which you thought you had put to death years ago, weeks ago, that those old addictions are even finding themselves to regrow like a weed in my flower bed, like they just keep coming back. And here's the thing about the good soil. Because when we have those things, we kind of want to like white knuckle it, right? We want to grab the steering wheel and say, I'm in control. I've got this. I've got the power to overcome this thing. Or I, gosh dang it, I'm going to be joyful. That's not a very joyful voice. Um, Good soil is not good because it's strong, because it's impenetrable. Good soil isn't good soil because it's solid. Good soil is good soil precisely because it's soft. It's broken. Good soil allows the seed to go in deep. Good soil can receive the water and retain the water so that that seed can become a plant. And as any plant grows, even in the good soil, when it comes up, it actually depends on hardship to grow strong. In in the 1990s, there was this interesting science experiment. Scientists wanted to see if we could create um, an ecosystem within a biodome so that we could take that to Mars and know that we can grow trees and bushes and fruit and and vegetables and things like that. So they built this ginormous biodome in Arizona that was like four acres. Uh, There's a photo of part of it there. It's huge. Uh, Eight scientists spent two years inside there, never left. And they're observing, they're taking care of the plants and things like that. It's a beautiful. They were so excited that they plant things and without the elements, like trees just started shooting up. It was amazing. But the problem was, after a while, these trees that shot up really, really fast looked amazing on the outside. They could not bear the weight of the fruit they were growing. And they either just started snapping from the top or they would just completely fall over because they had no root. You see, trees actually depend on wind to make their bark strong. You see a tree that's swaying during a high wind day and you're like, that sucker's falling on my house this year. I know it. That same wind that makes you afraid it's gonna fall over is, the same, is what actually makes that tree strong. The drought that we've had this year, which is not good for new young plants and farmers, um, are great actually for a mature tree because that forces that tree's roots to dig deeper and deeper into the ground where there is water. So like wind, which can be destructive, and drought, which can be destructive, are actually what a tree needs 
in order to find life. Now, it also needs the lack of wind and sun and water as well, but you can't take it out of these dangerous elements and expect it to actually grow healthily. So if you're the good soil, your life will not be without difficulty, which is actually good news because if, if the lack of difficulty can lead to death in our consumeristic society, then we know that when we're faced with hardships, this is the Spirit being able to work in our lives to make us a healthy plant that can produce fruit. So if you find yourself among the thorns, root them out, cut them out. You have the gospel seed in you. Jesus says that it's there. So root out that which is trying to kill your fruit. If you find yourself among the good soil, growing as a tree grows with the wind and the droughts, use the fruit of the Spirit to love one another. And with patience and kindness, with joy, lend a helping hand, uh, gently help those in the thorny soil rid themselves of thorns. And remember, without the seed, we're actually all just different types of dirt. And dirt's just dirt. It reminds me of in the creation story, uh, God says that he took the dust of the ground and he breathed life into it. Which reminds me on Ash Wednesday, before we celebrate Lent, we begin the, the Lenten season, we, we, we do the cross on your forehead and we say, from dust you have come and to dust you shall return. We are all just dirt. And so the question is, what kind of dirt, what kind of soil are you? So at the time we have remaining, I'm going to quickly just go through four observations that I have about the, the four soils Jesus talks about. So first, which soil? We don't know which soil our hearts are. But I can bet you this, if you long to be the good soil, if you long to be in the presence of Jesus, like you probably are or you will be. And God's working on tilling up your ground to make you a good fertile soil. But if you're like, I can't wait till this dude on the stage stops talking, you're probably the the soil that is actually the pathway. Jesus doesn't actually tell us if we can change what type of soil we are, but I don't think that matters as much going on with this, now I'm this, now I'm this, as much as it is just finding myself being the good soil that's received the seed with joy, just like the one in the, in the rocky soil, with perseverance and with diligence to root out the thorns. This also means that we don't know what type of soil other people are. So last week when we started this series on the parables, Robert uh, opened us with that, that parable on the prodigal son. Jesus is talking to two groups of people, right? Tax collectors and sinners who look like they are not the good soil. They look like they are far from God they are hardened. They don't know, like there's no way God would ever make them the good soil. And yet in Jesus's upside down world, his upside down kingdom, they are the ones that are broken. And the only thing they have to offer Jesus is a broken, soft heart. He's also talking to the Pharisees and the tax collectors who look like the champs. They look like, oh man, if there's a good soil, they're good because everything about them is good, right? because they're finding their righteousness in their works and they're not trusting God in his full word and his grace, knowing that they can never actually measure up to God. They're actually the seed who can hear but never understand. They're, they're the pathway who Jesus speaks 
And all they respond with is animosity and they can't receive the gospel. So we don't know when we look out, when I'm looking out at you and I'm seeing your faces, I can't tell from the outside looking in who can receive this word as good soil, who has got thorns in their face right now, who is currently on rocky soil, just a good strong wind from falling away, and who is completely tuned out and they're the path. I can't tell. Our second observation is the subject of this parable, which is the one part of the parable that Jesus does not interpret, which is the sower, the farmer. And I, I think that he doesn't tell us who that is uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's him at first. I think he's saying, I am the, I'm the one who's sowing the seed. I'm getting the gospel out there. I'm sharing the gospel with everyone. But he also doesn't want us to like box this parable in to say he's the sower. Because I think he wants us later in his great commission to realize that once you have become the good soil and received the seed and you're coming out with fruit, that one of the things he commands us to do is mimic him, imitate him, and sow the seed as well. But this sower that he talks about in this parable, man, he is an extravagant, cavalier sower, farmer. He's throwing his seed anywhere and everywhere. He isn't simply like me thinking very strategically and going, I see four places. That's the one place where it's guaranteed to grow and putting the seed there. Greg, when you go out and, uh, and spread seed for your fields, do you just like let the seed fall along the, the dirt road on your way to the field? No, it doesn't make sense in farming. And yet this farmer, man, he's spreading it everywhere. Why? Why? Well, one, we can't tell. Jesus knows. But we can't tell on the outside who will receive it and who won't. But two, man, there's that hard phrase in verse 10 where he's essentially making those who reject him double down on their rejection of him. So they can't say, I didn't see you, Jesus. I didn't hear you, Jesus. He says, no, they see, they hear, and they still choose to not understand. They still choose to walk away. But for us, when we put ourselves in the sower's shoes, because we can't tell who, we have to spread the seed extravagantly. Because you see, there could be a relapsing drug addict in county jail right now, serving three days to detox, right? And that could be the good soil. And I know that to be true because we have several people in our church family who that's your story. You spent time in jail. Everyone wrote you off. You wrote yourself off. And yet that was God making his way through to till up your soft heart and help you be able to receive the seed. And we might have a teenage guy in our student ministry. Man, he is like the guy everyone wants to be. Like he's impressive. He is awesome. He is the poster child for our student ministry. And yet we can't see that his heart is actually the path that the seed lands on and a bird comes and plucks it away. Or they're the rocky soil who's received the gospel with excitement as a teenager. And like so many, they go to college and fall away. We can't tell from the outside looking in. So we need to also be extravagantly sowing. And we can't write someone off because, of, well, I saw them fall away once. They must be the rocky soil. Keep sowing the seed. The seed cannot grow where the seed is not sown. 
Third, third observation, we can see that in other texts, that while we're called to receive the seed of the gospel, we're also called to sow the seed of the gospel. We are not in control of the growth of that seed. In Mark 4, uh, this is the same chapter where Mark uh, has the parable of the sower. It's like two parables later, but in the same chapter, he has another parable, super short. I'll read it for you now. He says, a man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. The same is true for farmers who surround us here. They know that there's a predictability about nature, about preparing the soil, planting the seeds, watering the seeds, trusting that the crop will grow. And yet they actually cannot make the seed open up to become a fruit. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I reworked our flower bed. We have a raised flower bed. It was a square last year. We added one more square to it. So now it's a rectangle, but I pulled it all out, tilled up the ground, put some new uh, raised flower bed soil in because our dirt is terrible. And we planted 50 tulips. I did all the work I can. I'll water it. We put some miracle Grow on there just because we don't trust God enough. And I'm waiting to see these like onion looking bulbs turn into tulips. I got to wait a long time. I got several months to wait for these, this, this seed to become a fruit. I have no power to make it happen. I could do everything right, but God has to make it grow. And Paul explains this in a spiritual sense to the Corinthian church. They were arguing about the, the importance of this leader or that leader, basically Paul or this man named Apollos. And Paul writes to them, and he says, what after all is Apollos? And what's Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the, the Lord assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we're co-workers in God's service and you are God's field. So God causes the growth to happen. My fourth and final observation is simply this. Don't forget what the seed is. If you're like me, if I was in your seat, I probably would be a little brain fog right now because we're talking about seed and soil and sowers. And I'm like, wait, what are we talking about again? The seed is the word of God. It's the news of his coming kingdom. It's the truth that there's a triune creator God of the universe who exists before and after time. And he created man in his image for his own pleasure and gave us a purpose on earth. But the kingdom begins pretty quickly with some bad news because this man and woman turn their back on their loving creator. And they try to steal his glory and take his throne, which belongs to him alone. And the consequences for that was severing of that relationship with the creator God and death. But for thousands of years, God still has pursued his people, still tried to show them grace over and over. And our ancestors again turned their back on God. And he promised that from the beginning to redeem us back to him, he gave us like shadows of this redemption through the sacrifice of lambs and calves, which only showed us more that we just try to pay off God with these things. And later he says, I don't deserve, I don't, I don't um, want these things. That's not what I desire. Desire is the word I'm thinking of. I don't desire lambs and calves. I desire a contrite heart that loves me. 
And it's all pointing to the day when God himself would lay down the very glory that we tried to steal and he would sacrifice himself for the enemies of his throne. And Jesus came and lived the life we were created to live and he died the death that only we deserve to die. He defeated sin and death by being a sacrifice to pay for our sins of anyone who would receive him as a good soil. Now, like the mustard seed, which is another one of his parables, this whole thing started off really small with a seemingly unimportant man from an unimportant tribe of an unimportant nation in the midst of Rome. And once it started coming up like a farmer cut, trying to uh, cut weeds out of his field, the Roman government, the, the Jewish leaders tried to cut this Christian movement out. But Jesus told Peter that the gates of hell could not prevail over his church. Why? Is it because we're so strong? Is it because our soil is so awesome? It's because he is the king and he cannot be defeated. And in the end, our, his kingdom, his church, his bride will persevere and become stronger. But the one thing that can weaken the church, the one thing that can weaken his kingdom is when we as his church find satisfaction outside of him and let the thorns grow up. And we don't cut the thorns out. It can seem at times like we have this like terminal fear of trusting God. And so we turn away from him time and time again. And so that's why every single week, we believe it's important to turn away from those things and turn back to Jesus together to repent, to confess our sin and to receive forgiveness through the symbol of communion. And so if you're in the room this morning and you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, you put all of your hope on Jesus and none of your hope on yourself, we invite you to take part in communion. So our band and servers will come, but I want to give some instructions as they come. We have two stations here as well as one in the back if you prefer uh, the disposable cups. But up front here, you have a server tear a piece of this bread off. They'll hand it to you and say that this is the body of Jesus. It's broken for you. You'll take that bread and you'll dip it into the juice. And they'll say that this is the blood of Jesus that's shed for you. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of our church or not, we invite you to partake in communion. But if you're not a Christian, if that's not your story, if this is not your king, this is nothing to you. This is just a piece of vegan bread. It's mediocre at best and grape juice. This means nothing to you until you have taken Christ. So I would ask you to do that today. You can remain in your seat and pray to God to reveal himself to you. You can come find me or Robert back here who did the baptism. We would love to talk with you. And we started last week. We have a new prayer team that's over here every single service. Uh, whether you're like, your life's falling apart you feel great, you need to come and repent, ask, uh, confess sin. If you want to ask someone to come and, and pray over you for physical healing, whatever it is. My wife and I actually went over there at the nine o'clock service and it was one of the most ministering things that I've received in the last year is to have someone pray over us in one of our needs. So I would, wherever you're at in life, go over and receive prayer if you will. Now this time, if you, I'll pray and we'll receive communion together. Father, we need you. We need you to change us 
because you are the unchangeable God. He's the only one deserving of glory, only one deserving of worship. Forgive us when we try to steal your glory, when we try to take your throne. Soften our hearts to be the good soil this morning. Help us to cut out the thorns. Help us to put to death that which is distracting us from growing in joy and love, patience, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. Father, may there be men and women in the room this morning that receive this seed for the first time. And they find you to be a good father. And the, the prayer that I pray for my sons at night, I'll pray over our congregation. So Father, would you make our hearts fertile, good soil for the gospel? Would you grow us into strong, courageous young men and women, or old men and women, I guess, who are spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and physically healthy? Would you teach us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.